Hi, friends. I want to let everybody know that after a longer delay than I had initially planned, I'm opening up Flourishing at Work in Academia as a year-long renewable membership program for academic folks. The doors open in October 2022, but enrollment is ongoing. Flourishing is a membership because flourishing is a mindset that requires practice. The get it all done in eight weeks boot camp mentality added more rush and pressure for me and for my clients than felt good. And so over the course of a year, each month in the membership, I'll share content and tools on a topic that's relevant to your professional development. And this is not the content that HR and faculty affairs put out. No budgets, banner, tableau, no databases, no scheduling forms, no class schedules. In Flourishing at Work in Academia, we talk about defining success for yourself, creating a vision for your current career stage that's simple and actionable, prioritizing your time and attention on the things that really matter to you, what boundaries actually look like, developing a warm audience for your scholarship, community, trust, and a good mindset for doing the work that you're meant to do in this world. And as a member, you will also get to experience me challenging you a little bit on things like why tracking your time might make sense, why LinkedIn isn't that bad, and what developing a mindfulness practice might look like and what the benefits might be. We'll meet live twice a month, and you can watch the recording if the time doesn't work out for you, and you can watch past recordings if from before your join date. Um, in the first session, I'll offer more content. In the second session of the month, we'll do coaching, Q&A, things like that. This is not a pre-recorded class, but an evolving community of people who want to be well while doing good in the world. I invite you to go to my website and click on Work With Me. And under Group Coaching, you'll find the enrollment link for Flourishing at Work in Academia. The direct link is also in the podcast description on your podcatcher for this episode. You can also email me at jennifer at jenniferaskey.com and I'll get you enrolled and we'll set up your one-on-one onboarding call so that you can chart your path through the year with me. Um, I really look forward to seeing you in the membership because I believe that personal and professional development for academics is pretty much the same thing. So let's join hands and work on that together. Thank you. Welcome to the Mindful Academy podcast with me, Jennifer Askey. I'm a professional certified coach and academic workplace consultant. On this podcast, I talk about doing well personally, so that you can perform well professionally. I talk about intentional career planning and about how to get out of your own way and align yourself with success. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mindful Academy. I'm Jennifer Askey. I'm your coach. And in today's episode, I am going to revisit a topic from the last episode, which is imposter syndrome. And I'm revisiting this based on an encounter I had a couple of weeks ago in early April 
um, here in Edmonton when Elizabeth Gilbert came to speak. So she's on a short Canadian tour to talk about, I guess, lessons learned in researching and writing and touring for Big Magic the first time it came out, which is like eight years ago. So um, the first thing to notice there is that if you do good work, you can keep relying on it to connect you to the people you want to be talking to and to provide you with um, social and academic proof of the validity of your work. Like it isn't just one and done. Keep reusing that stuff because you've put the work in. Um, I kind of loved the fact that even though she has a new book out, a relatively new book, she was she was talking about Big Magic, which is an eight-year-old book. And that that's okay because if it was a good story once or if there are good lessons once, there will be good lessons again and again and again. And so that does actually connect to imposter syndrome in that it provides a nice counterbalance to the internal pressure to constantly be creating something perfectly novel and brand new. And and I get that pressure, right? Like I very much feel that in my own work as a coach and in sort of advertising myself, marketing myself, I feel a certain amount of pressure to always say and do something novel. Um, And yet that isn't required, right? Because um, in in my life, I don't ingest entirely new and novel. I ingest kind of the same thing over and over again in different ways. And so that repackaging and reinforcing has has real value for the people who are reading your work. Um, But what I wanted to say about Elizabeth Gilbert and Big Magic, and I'm going to grab my notes so that I can stay a little bit on track. And I'm wearing my fancy new reading glasses um, that I ordered from Clearly. And I can't tell you how excited I am because normally my glasses, like pre-eye surgery, I was almost minus 20. And so my glasses were very tiny and like Coke bottle thick and didn't, they were not aesthetically pleasing. They were not physically comfortable. It was just kind of a gong show. And now I get to enter into this new world where I can buy really adorable reading glasses and scatter them about the house. Um, This is going to be my entire new personality going forward. It's just fun reading glasses um, on some sort of conveyor belt coming into my life. Okay, so um, what I wanted to talk about that I was inspired to talk about at this evening with Liz Gilbert is self-compassion and imposter syndrome. So, I'll, t- I'll tell you how this unraveled for me. I'll just let you follow my process. So the whole gist, not the whole gist, the structuring element of Liz Gilbert's talk was varying ways her big magic question got answered. So she decided to spend a year as part of her creative process asking people, what are you most excited for in your life? right now. And so part of her talk in the lovely Windspear Center was talking about how people responded super positively and generously to this question, how other people were profoundly offended that she would look at their lives and ask what they were excited about, how some people didn't know how to respond to that question at all, and it was awkward, and right? 
So she used that to sort of structure the conversation. And as a coach, I love that question. Like, what are you most excited about in your life right now? Um, and I also know as a coach that you like don't coach people without their consent. And that is kind of dropping into their lives, into somebody's life and asking them an incredibly um, vulnerable question without their consent. So use that question um, with people you trust, I guess would be one of my takeaways. <laughs> um, but the, the question is a good one. So I'm going to put it out there, right? What are you most excited about in your life? And that that big expansive question, what are you most excited about? Like that in and of itself is an invitation to imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome is most likely to like rear its ugly little head um, when you declare something big and ambitious. So if you're super excited about something, imposter syndrome is going to be over in the corner going, and it's going to suck and you're going to fail, right? So um Answering that question for yourself might launch you into a space of imposter syndrome. Um, so that's one observation. My second observation is why did I spend money to go to, to go listen to Elizabeth Gilbert talk? Right? I've read Big Magic. I've not read Eat, Pray, Love. I'm going to be contrarian about that. Um, but I've also read some of her essayistic works about her wife who died of cancer. I've listened to her a few times on Glennon Doyle's podcast. I think pretty highly of the way she writes about the creative process. And I loved Big Magic, like absolutely adored it. I loved her story about um, an idea that she had for a book that she didn't start writing. And so the idea left her and like went and found Ann Patchett and Ann Patchett wrote Bel Canto because Elizabeth Gilbert didn't get the idea that she didn't give the idea she had any of her time and attention. So like the idea is out there in the universe, just waiting for you to be um, its vessel into creation. I, I think that's charming. You might not love it, but I do. The reason I bought the book, the reason I went to listen to her is because I heard her interviewed on Radio Lab, probably while she was researching this book or writing it or working on it. Um, because she was interviewing people about inspiration and their creative processes and the team at Radio Lab. And so this is going to be like before 2010 or maybe 2010 at the absolute latest, because I remember where I was when I heard this and it was a long time and far away ago. And so Jad Abumrad is interviewing Elizabeth Gilbert and she tells the story of Tom Waits. And um, Tom Waits's creative process. And he has an appointment with his muse and his muse is supposed to meet him in the studio at nine o'clock in the morning, every day of the week, right? Or work days. And so he relies on his muse meeting him there because they have this arrangement. And he says, you know, sometimes I'm driving down the highway and the muse gives me an idea. And I say, don't bother me right now. I am busy, I'm driving, I got other things going on. Please go bother Leonard Cohen. And I love that as a story, first of all, that Tom Waits would be like, no, 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 that's not my song right now. Go give it to Lenny. He'll do good. Like, that charms me. But there are so many things I love about that. I love this notion that the idea you have right now in this moment, like maybe you're washing dishes and something comes to you and your hands are soapy and you can't write it down. And you're like, oh, no, forget it. 
Um, that's okay. Like if it's yours, it'll stick around. If it's not yours, that's fine because you have more ideas in you out there waiting to be used by you, like whatever your preferred metaphor is. Um, it is, you don't need, we don't need to grab a hold intensively to an idea, to a project and think like, if I don't do justice to this, I will have squandered everything that is my potential, right? So there's a light touch in recognizing that ideas can come at us as if they're on a conveyor belt, right? Just like my glasses, that must be my metaphor for the day, conveyor belts. Um, But the, the generosity of ideas out there in the world and I find that refreshing. I find that a nice perspective. Like, don't bother me now. I'm busy. Maybe I'll write you down in a notebook and then forget about you. Maybe I'll put you in my writing pipeline and then neglect you. That's all okay as long as I'm doing work right now. Because the next good idea will always come to you. I promise. If you make yourself open to it, the next idea will always come to you. Right? Because you're full of them. Um, So I liked um, when I heard her interview and then when I read the book, this notion of curiosity and creativity in partnership as part of a project. So like she's interviewing people about their inspiration and creativity. Um, And so she's talking to authors like Ann Patchett and she's talking to musicians like Tom Waits. But for herself, like part of her creativity was this curiosity question. What are you most excited about? So for me, this is an expansive view of creativity that allows for this notion of like your life being a creative project. And that resonates for me as somebody who has far more academic training than any kind of creative training, because I think that the work we do as as academics is creative, can be creative, should be creative. And so to think of your whole life as this space of creation um, is, again, a really nice lens on the process of writing and research and doing work. So the big inspiration that I drew from the evening that prompted me to record this is where I'm headed now. And that is this connection between self-compassion and imposter syndrome. So Elizabeth Gilbert talked for like 45 minutes and then we had a 15, 20 minute Q&A. And so they had two microphones up and people stood in line to ask questions. And she policed it super well. She was really clear about what's a question and what's a comment. And she was super clear about one question and not stacking them. Like she moderated her own um, Q and A. It was great. Like just very authoritative in a friendly, open, lovely way. Um, we could all take a page from that book when we are at conferences. I think. Anyway, um, the question. One of the last questions, and it just mm, got me right here. Because there were a lot of aspiring authors in in the room asking her things about writing and creative process and whatnot. Um, But one woman stood up and just said, how do you get over imposter syndrome? When will I know that I'm good enough? Or how do I ignore the voice in my head that says that I'm not? And the reason I love that question is because 
I can do all the research and read all the articles and there are academic articles and popular articles about imposter syndrome and um, and I can talk to people who write and all of that. And I have a lot of insight into imposter syndrome, my own and others. And yet I still think or hope like deeply that somebody out there has a magic pill that will make imposter syndrome go away. Like if you just do this practice, you can turn the volume down on imposter syndrome until it's barely a whisper, right? I want meditation to to be that magic pill for me. And it does a decent job, but nothing turns the volume down to nothing, right? In my experience. So I'm thinking, oh, Elizabeth Gilbert, like she writes about writing. Her biggest success um, as a writer has been in this sort of autobiographical memoir space, this writing about process space. Like, mm, she's going to have something really profound to say. Maybe she has the magic pill. Dear reader, she does not have the magic pill. Which is okay. Um, Because what she said landed with me because it is very much what I try to say to clients who come with imposter syndrome and what I try to say to myself when I'm struggling with, am I big enough, good enough, strong enough, connected enough, whatever enough, smart enough to do the work I want to do in the world. And she said, the first thing you need to know is that it's part of the human condition. Imposter syndrome is part of the human condition. And that was her language. And when she said that, I got yoinked right back into notes I have taken and experiences that I've had largely in the meditation and mindfulness space, Um, learning about self-compassion and exploring self-compassion intellectually and emotionally. If we believe that imposter syndrome is part of the human condition, which I think is a no-brainer, right? Like the, the last episode I recorded, how many gazillions of people signed up for um, the academic impressions discussion of imposter syndrome, like 420. Like imposter syndrome is a thing we all experience. It's the voice of your inner critic telling you in language that is like designed to push all of your buttons, how badly it's all going to go, how hard you suck, how unreliable others are, whatever it is that pushes your buttons, right? That's that's there for all of us. If we recognize that, then the next step is not, and this is I think what a lot of us want to do, we wanna put on armor, Armor ourselves up, get our swords, our Uzis, whatever, and like go to battle with our imposter syndrome and prove to ourselves, to the world, to the publishers, to the planet that we're worthy, that we're good enough. And while I am all for you being worthy and you being good enough because you are, the like gearing up for battle is maybe not the way to combat imposter syndrome. I think imposter syndrome needs softness, by which I don't mean like, oh, you're still going to be okay, little girl. That's not what I mean. I mean the melting softness of one human heart recognizing another human heart. 
What if when we experience imposter syndrome, and instead of turning that against ourselves in some way or another, what if we let it hurt for a minute? What if we let the fear in for a minute and used that fear as an engine for recognizing the people next to us who are in pain, who are experiencing fear? What if we used our own worry and potential self-absorption? Because that's the thing with imposter syndrome. Like you can just bend your nose all the way to your navel and get super up in your own head about this. Ask me how, because I have like literally an entire shelf full of journals. That's basically me struggling with this concept over the course of the last like decade or so. It's like super boring because I'm way up in my own navel gazing at myself. And I think the insight that mindfulness has brought me and that engaging with Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion has brought me is that when you're in pain, Um, self-inflicted pain most of all, that maybe your job is to soften towards yourself and others and recognize that we we are all on the same journey in some way, shape, or form. We we're in different boats, we have different work to do. But the journey of like feeling at home in our skin and feeling fulfilled and all of that, like everybody's struggling in some way, shape, or form. And so when you're experiencing your particular brand of struggle, what can you do that is compassionate and gentle towards others and recognizing their struggle? And how does that create a virtuous cycle of, oh, I'm doing something, right? So there's action there that sometimes pulls us out of that navel-gazy or self-doubty cycle that we can get into with imposter syndrome. Um, So you're doing something, and we all know that generosity feels good, but generosity even of thought feels good, right? So self-compassion as a response to imposter syndrome can open us towards ourselves and can open us towards other people. And that that opening and softening, I think is, it's really critical for, well, for lots of things. What I want, what comes to mind immediately as I say that is it's critical for like your lack of ulcers and headaches to begin with. Like it lowers stress to engage compassionately with the world, right? Because when you are engaging compassionately with yourself and others, like you get to co-regulate one another's emotions. You get to not make yourself wrong, not make other people wrong, right? So this woman who was saying like, dear Liz Gilbert, how do I get over imposter syndrome? Liz Gilbert was saying, honey, you don't. And here I am with like a movie deal and a bunch of books and a speaking tour And my heart breaks for you because it breaks for me because I've experienced that as well. And not like, oh, go through this and you'll come out the other end, but just like, this is the path. There's no, 
there's no jumping off of the path. There's no shortcut. There's no magic pill. And so if you're going to experience, whether it's imposter syndrome or self-doubt in some other form, because we could and have discussed whether imposter syndrome is even a good term to use, but whatever self-doubt you're experiencing, that's it. Like that's your path. (laughs) How do you gently say, "Mm, yeah, that sucks. Stay on the path. Mm, That hurts. Hurts for them, maybe in a different way, but look, we're hurting and we're going to stay on the path. And that generosity um, really sort of smacked me in the face that night. I was like, oh, right. It's all about self-compassion. It's all about being kind to ourselves and being kind to others in, in equal measure, right? Because we are sometimes it's easier to be kind to other people than it is to be kind to ourselves. Um, and so thinking about self-doubt and imposter syndrome is a way to illustrate, like, mm, try that gentleness with yourself for once. Um, so if you haven't read Big Magic and you want um, an easy beach read, because it is, it's like, it's not a challenging read, but the ideas are probably enough to keep you thinking about what it means in an academic context to write, um, right? If she if she's your kind of writer, it will it will land with you. Um, so that's it for today. Self compassion is not an antidote to imposter syndrome, but it is a way to defang imposter syndrome by recognizing that it is part of the human condition. And it is not something that we cheat our way out of with a magic pill or a shortcut. We experience it. We allow it to feel like shit temporarily. And we keep moving forward. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts. You can get in touch with me at jennifer at jenniferaskey.com. You can leave comments here in the YouTube thingy because I will see them. And if you're listening on a podcast, uh, share this with somebody who needs to be told that imposter syndrome is just the thing that we go through and don't give it more power than it needs to have. I look forward to talking to you soon. Take good care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mindful Academy podcast. For questions about this episode, suggestions for future episodes, or to request a consultation with me, email me at jennifer at jenniferaskey.com. This episode was recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 lands. The songs included in the intro and outro for this podcast are Heartache by Silent Partner and Piano Store by Jimmy Fontanez of Media Right Productions, both sourced through the audio library. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>